A kindergarten teacher told her class that they were to go one at a time to the front of the room, turn around, and then tell the class what they most wanted to be when they grew up. Perhaps you've been one of those students, or you've asked that of, of one of your own children. One after another, they would say things like, I want to be a fireman or a firefighter. You have to say firefighter today <laughs> when I grow up. I want to be a nurse. Another announced his intention uh, that when he grew up, he wanted to be a bus driver. And then it was Jeremy's turn. After he got to the front, he turned to his classmates and declared, I want to be the popsicle man. Later, the teacher relayed what Jeremy had said to his father, and the father thought that the teacher was pointing out Jeremy's um, low self-esteem and low expectations of his son. So he was trying in his mind to come up with some explanation for the teacher when the teacher realized what he was doing and said, perhaps you misunderstood why I am telling you this story. After your son spoke, all the other kids in the class expressed disappointment with their choices. They envied Jeremy for his. Jeremy had chosen someone who made other people happy, and they all wished they had chosen such a destiny for their own lives. The way we answer this question, who we want to be when we grow up, what we want to be, reflects a cultural bias of how we speak about life and our own lives in particular. You'll notice the question is, what do you want to be? And yet, almost all of us proceed to answer it with what we might do as a vocation. Seldom do we hear someone say, what I want to be is good, content, fulfilled, brave, authentic, or loving not just kindergartners, but adults can't even seem to bring themselves to answer the question in this way. Because we don't speak of the development of our character or inner life, we speak of the externals. Where our ambition might lead us in terms of what we hope to accomplish or achieve in this life. Whenever you link being and doing together, doing dominates. It becomes the way in which we express our thinking and our identity. We describe who we are by what keeps us busy. Not who we are in our inner being and what it is we live for. Most of us would say that we live, I mean, we work to live, not the other way around. But what truly makes our lives meaningful what fulfills or satisfies us? What would you say is your destiny? Or what direction does your life follow? When Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit, he was not implying his spirit would vacate his body the way the Greeks thought of the human life as some dualistic tension between spirit and matter and that ultimately there is a separation. Nor was Jesus saying he was giving up his mortal life in the expectation of becoming immortal. No, what Jesus said was something along 
these lines, something he had said throughout his life. Father, my life is lived in the reality of your presence and for your purpose. The end of my life is the same as it has been from the beginning. It's in your hands. My destiny is to be with you, to be with you now as you have been with me always. I've lived secure in your love, obedient to your will, confident in your goodness, and submitted to your purpose. Well, I think Paul was trying to get the same idea across to his readers at the church in Corinth when he wrote, We're convinced that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And Jesus died so that those who live might live no longer for themselves, but for him who died and was raised. So if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. All the old is gone. Behold, everything has become new. And all of this is God's doing. It's God's gift to you. God sending Christ to reconcile the world to himself. Because Jesus gave his life for us, we no longer have to live the old pattern, the old way we used to live, thinking only about ourselves, uh, making a life for ourselves, seeking our own pleasures, our own achievements, our own resources, and wondering where it all leads. But instead, like Jesus, we can live with God and for God. We can live according to a new destiny. I think there's a beautiful image of what all of this is saying in a TV commercial that's airing currently. Um, you see a little baby, probably a toddler, about one and a half years of age, standing in his crib, holding on to the bars, um, wanting out. We've all been there. Uh, some of us are still there. Um, <laughs> And then the father enters the picture, and the father picks the child up and then immediately places him back down in the crib and pats him, like, now stay there, you know. And as soon as he's done patting, up pops the kid, back to the rails. And this happens again and again and again, till eventually the father climbs into the crib. And the child turns away from looking out and collapses on his father and falls. Well, it doesn't, just relaxes, rests there. In Jesus, God has climbed into our lives and our world, not counting our sins against us, but allowing us to find our home, to return in our relationship to God. I knew at age 17 what I wanted to be when I grew up. It wasn't the same at age five. More than my own idea, I felt that I had been called by God to be a pastor. It was 16 years later that that actually came to fruition because there was 14 years of college and seminary, serving two years as a missionary teacher, and then I made this this unusual decision after seminary and after all of that 
to change denominations, which started the process over again, so another four years. And I was finally ready to accept a call from a church, but it didn't happen. After about 18 months of waiting, I became discouraged and wondered if I should consider another direction, another vocation. I prayed to God saying, hey, what gives? I've done my part. I've done all I can do. I'm ready. So if this is really what you want, God, it's, it's what I thought you wanted and it's what I want, then why isn't this happening? You know, sort of laying the blame where it belonged. <laughs> Have I misstepped in some way? Are you redirecting me? Later, a member of the search committee that eventually recommended me to the church to serve as their associate pastor told me that there was little doubt that God wanted me there. And he recalled for me what happened. It's rare that at the first gathering of an associate pastor nominating committee that anyone comes with a recommendation of a prospective candidate. You're just getting started. That's not the time to bring a name. But that particular man had called his former pastor from another location and said, hey, do you, we're going to be searching for someone. Do you know of someone? And that pastor happened to be the chair of the candidates committee to which I belonged, who supervised me. And when he heard what the position was for, he said, well, this is the person I'd recommend. I think he'd be a good fit for you and your church. There was also a member of that committee who I had gone to seminary with. She didn't um, move into ordained or pastoral ministry, but had relocated to this particular area and was nominated to serve on the committee. And when she saw my resume, she decided she would recommend me to the committee. And the last person was the pastor of the church who had conferred with a, a previous pastor of that same congregation who happened to be the interim pastor where I was serving as an elder on the session. And so when he asked that pastor, who would you recommend, he said my name. So the pastor came with his recommendation uh, the woman came with hers, and, and the chair of the committee came with his. All three people brought a name to that meeting, and it was the same name, mine. Now, it took the committee another seven months <laughs> in a process. And no one told me this, by the way, so I'm just, so add, the 18, add another 17 months to the 18, and, and I'm about ready to pull out, and I think I'm done. But when they reached their decision, they extended a call to me. You might say destiny. With that call, I became a pastor, although it took me more than a few decades to learn what it means to grow up. At the time, I could not see how God was teaching me beyond my training what it meant for me to be a pastor and learn to wait and to trust God in the face of great uncertainty. 
I finally got to what I felt called to do with my life, but I had failed to learn something important about how to be with God and how to yield to God. I quickly became reliant upon my own capabilities and efforts, but I had to learn how to suffer, to struggle, and to be vulnerable. I was so full of ambition to serve that I made my life more about the externals of filling the role as a pastor while my own soul was lacking development and growth. It's taken me years to learn the value and importance of contemplating what God wants for me and then to rest in that reality. Someone after the first service came up to me and said, you're not suggesting that you're there already, are you? (laughs) I said, well, not anymore, I'm not. (laughs) There are times all of us will likely suffer and struggle and question what God is doing or not doing in our personal lives. But make no mistake that God wants to be part of your life, every part of your life. For some of us, this may be the only way we will ever move toward a path of meaning or spiritual wholeness or deep fulfillment the place where we put our trust in God and learn the life lessons that will define our own destiny. May it be so.